This is Pastor Clint Ribble, and you're listening to the Grace Point Church Podcast. For more information, please visit gracepoint.net. All right, I've been waiting to get to this scripture with you guys all week long. This is one of my favorite texts. We'll look at a few verses from the first chapter of John, John 1. I'll give a little background information on the text in a moment, but let's just look at this. This is the beginning of Jesus' earthly public ministry per the gospel of John. The next day, John, now, confusing. John's gospel, historically, traditionally ascribed to John the disciple. But the John that's being referred to here in John 1, you might know, is John the Baptist, another, another fellow named John. So it's kind of like the Marys. You get really confused about the Marys in the New Testament. You can get confused about these guys as well. But this is, this is John the Baptist, not the one traditionally ascribed to writing the book called John. The next day, John the Baptist again was standing with two of his disciples. And as he watched Jesus walk by, he exclaimed, Look, Here is the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. When Jesus turned and saw them following, and notice this, when Jesus turned and saw them following, he said to them, the first words of Jesus' earthly ministry, what are you looking for? Let's stop just a moment and let that sink in. The first words, per the Gospel of John, the first words of Jesus' earthly ministry. A question. What are you looking for? They said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? The old King James, where dwellest thou? Where is your home? Where are you living? And he said to them, come and see. They came and they saw where he was staying and they remained with him the rest of that day. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon. So per the Gospel of John, this question, what are you looking for, stands as the first words of Jesus' earthly ministry. If you would have gone back in the text and read more of the text, you would have found that Jesus had come down from Nazareth up in Galilee. He had come down to the Jordan River where his cousin John was preaching the kingdom of God and creating quite a stir, as a matter of fact. He was preaching the kingdom of God um, and he was baptizing in preparation for what he described as the coming of the Messiah and the making of things right for Israel and even the world. The Bible tells us that for a few days, John 1 says that Jesus literally mingled in that crowd. It was a, it was a spiritual Woodstock, Lollapalooza of sorts. It was just people from everywhere camping out, living down by the river in a van. No, uh, they were down by the Jordan River and they were being ministered to by John and they were living expectantly for something profound that was about to happen. John described it as the coming of the anointed one. Jesus had been there for several days. On one particular day prior to what we just read, on one particular day 
when John saw him, John said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. On this next day, the second day, or the second day in the text, John saw him again and simply exclaimed, Behold the Lamb of God. But on that first day, he not only described him as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, but he declared right out of the chute that Jesus was the anointed one, the Messiah. He went on to say, not only is he the anointed one, the Messiah, and the Lamb who takes the sins of the world away, but he put an exclamation point on the declaration by saying, this is the one who is going to baptize the world with the Holy Spirit. The Bible tells us, upon hearing that, two of John's disciples turned from John, believed John, and they began to follow Jesus. These are the first two disciples. Some say it was Andrew and Philip. Some say it was Andrew and the apostle John, sons of Zebedee, James and John. Whoever these two were, Scripture doesn't name them immediately. But the Bible says that they had heard enough and they did what their leader told them to do and they began to follow Jesus. Interesting. As soon as Jesus realizes that someone is following him. He's been there for days, but now he feels this sense of being followed. Jesus turns, the Bible said, and looks over his shoulder, literally, turns and looks over his shoulder, and when he spots these two fellows, the Bible says that he gazed intently, that Greek word that some translations softly render, he looked at them, it really means to gaze intently. He looked over his shoulder, and they locked eyes. And he measured his words. And he spoke those first words. And into their eyes he said, what are you looking for? What an interesting and telling question to ask. What do you seek? One translation simply has him saying, what do you want? Another translation has him specifically saying, what do you want from me? Finally, another translation I read this morning, Jesus said, what are you after? What an interesting and telling thing to say to these first two who had decided to follow him. It's interesting in, in this, that as the ministry of John is pointing toward him, and the crowds are now going to begin to make their shift toward him, and the first ebb is starting with these first two who've made the decision Instead of pointing heavenward and declaring the lofty ideas and ideals of the kingdom of God, instead of parlaying all of John's eloquent and theologically rich descriptions of him as Messiah, Lamb, Baptizer, I mean, he had a lot of material to work with. The first verses of this same chapter in John said, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word I mean, totally fixing for us theologically who what Jesus was to the Johannine community at the latter part of the first century. What Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the early Gospels, didn't give us, the church by now had settled. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. This one who was the incarnate Word of God this one who was God, this one called the Word of God, surely 
had a lot of material to work with as he turned to these two to declare himself. And yet the Bible says, revealing very clearly the heart of God, the intent of God, the nature of God, the philosophy of God on the matter of spiritual development. God has a philosophy, as indicated in Jesus, about how people are to do spiritual work. And to that end, he turned to them, and instead of declaring who he was and what they needed to do, he began his ministry by asking them to search their own hearts. He asked them to truly know what they were longing and looking for, J.W., out of life. That's what he said. He said, I want to know what you're looking for. Maybe more than that, I want you to know what you're looking for. We'll come back to that in a moment. It's incredibly important. Their response to his question is also incredibly telling. It's, it's incredibly telling in that first chapter that they did not buy what their leader John had told them hook, line, and sinker. And they certainly went looking back through that theological filter that the Johannine Gospel gives us 70 years after the fact. Bottom line is this, they didn't look at him and call him God. When he looked at them and said, what are you looking for? They didn't look at him and call him Lord. They didn't call him Christ. And frankly, they didn't call him baptizer, lamb, or Messiah. What John had just told them he was. Instead, they called him Rabbi. Very simple name. A name that meant teacher. What are you looking for is his overture to them. And their response is Rabbi. And I want to stop there for a moment. <clears throat> and I think the Gospel of John gives us this immediately as to the nature of God. It's a very important lesson about God. They called him what they could. They called him what they believed. And he was much more. But the fact of the matter is, Jesus, God, is always satisfied by a lesser title than he deserves if, if it is given honestly. Let me say that again. Jesus proved in that moment that he is satisfied with interaction that understands him to be less than he actually is if that title and that interaction is done honestly. He meets people where they are. And as a matter of fact, I'm convinced he would rather be called rabbi honestly than God dishonestly. He meets us where we are. And they looked at him and they said, Rabbi, that's all we got. John may have more. Later people may have more. But we've got rabbi. And he looked at them and said, good, let's start there. They said, Rabbi... <clears throat> We have a question for you. Instead of directly answering his question, what are you looking for? Instead of fully revealing and laying their hearts bare on the table and saying, this is it, this is our innermost longings and this is what we want out of life. Instead of doing that, and maybe they couldn't have done that at that moment. Maybe they weren't even aware of themselves well enough to be able to do that at that moment. Maybe it would take much time with Jesus before they were able to even know the inner workings of their own soul. 
But they looked at him and they said, where are you staying? Where is, where is your home? Where dwellest thou? Have you ever had somebody ask you a question that was so freighted for you that you understood that they just asked you a question, they had no idea what they were asking you, and you had to look back at them, Kevin, and say, how long do you have? And they look at you and they realize that they just bit off more than they could chew. They really didn't mean how are you. They just was try they were trying to say hi. But you looked at them and said, how long do you have? I think that's what's happening here in this moment when Jesus looks at them and says, what are you looking for? And they look back at him and say, where do you live? It was their way of saying, there's not enough time here and this isn't the space to do what you're asking us to do and frankly we would like to know more about where you're coming from we'd like to know more about you we'd like to spend some more time with you and it very well may be that at some point we will reveal our innermost longings and desires to you we've just seen our our rabbi do it we've been following John the Baptist for a long time and we just watched him step out and shut his whole world down and say, I've got to decrease that he may increase. I'm not worthy to untie his shoes. We just watched our rabbi do exactly what you're asking us to do, but we're not there. We may at some point be there, but before we do, we'd like to hear you further. We understand why John is so sold on you. Maybe we don't understand why he is. Maybe we just understand that he is. We believe in him and he believes in you. We believe that he was deeply convicted and we heard his testimony. His testimony, you just heard Jesus. He pointed to you and said, I saw. We didn't see it. Maybe it happened right in front of us, but we didn't see it. It's an awkward thing when people have profound spiritual experiences in proximity to you and you're looking around saying, I didn't get it. The song didn't move me. They looked at Jesus and they said, we heard John say that he saw the Holy Spirit of God descend from heaven like a dove. And John saw it light on you. We heard him say that when he saw it light on you, that he remembered the word that was spoken. God had talked to him way back when, and God had told him, one of these days you're going to be preaching the kingdom. One of these days, God said to him, you're going to be declaring the Messiah is coming. And one of these days as you're declaring it in the midst of declaring it, the Holy Spirit of God is going to descend. It's going to be in the form of a dove and it's going to flutter down until it lights upon a human being. And when you see the Holy Spirit land on that human being, you will know that this is the Son of God. And they said, we understand John was convicted. We understand his testimony because he just said, I myself have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. So please understand this, Rabbi. John saw it. We heard it. And there's a big difference between those two things. John had the experience, and we heard his testimony. Job 42 and 5, Job said, I have heard of you by the hearing of my ears, but now I've seen you with my eyes. And there's a big difference. 
But we believe in John, and we may not have seen, but we have heard, and we believe enough that we would like to see more. Interestingly, not only was Jesus not offended by their careful response, because the Bible doesn't say that he looked back at them and said, you got to be kidding me. I'm God in flesh. I am the Messiah. John was right. The Holy Spirit did land on me. But he didn't expect that from them. He expected honest engagement with them, and he always meets us in the midst of our honest engagement, wherever it is. Not only was he not offended by their response, I I think he was actually impressed by their response because he simply responded to their query by looking at them. You remember what he said? He looked at them and said... Come and see. Profound. Not come and hear. Lots of teachers, lots of preachers like to be heard, like to hear themselves talk, and like others to hear themselves talk. That was not Jesus. He looked and said, Come and see. This was a teacher who simply, who did not simply want to be heard. This was a rabbi who wanted to be seen. And the rest of this gospel, as he walked with these people who said, we have heard, but we want to see, the rest of this gospel is the story of them ultimately. Even one of those two, if it were indeed Philip, was the one who looked at him sometime later, just before the Lord was crucified, and said, show us the Father. And Jesus looked at him and remembered this first day and said, Philip, have I been so long time with you? And you haven't known me? When you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So confident was Jesus in his person that he felt no need to raise his voice. He felt no need for theatrics and histrionics and all the other stuff that we go through to try to impose our convictions and our experiences on other people. Jesus was so confident in his person that he felt no need to step out with thunderbolts, lightning flashing from his fingertips and immediately head to the water and walk on it. So confident in he that he felt no need to defend or proclaim or impose on them who he was. And on this day when he looked over his shoulder and fixed his gaze across that shoulder Not atlases, but across the shoulder that the universe actually did rest upon. When he looked across that shoulder into the eyes of two men. Number one, he didn't tell them what they should have been looking for. And that makes sense to me. You come all the way from heaven. But he didn't look at them and say, heads up, keep your eyes open and be looking for. He didn't tell them what to be looking for. He simply asked them what they were looking for. And secondly, he felt no urgent need to tell them that not only is this what you're supposed to be looking for, I'm it. No, he didn't tell them that at all. Some people call that in the Gospels the messianic secret. Why was he who he was and yet he was always putting his finger to his lips saying, shh. Doubling back now into the story it's very important to note that Jesus' confidence in the process was due not only to his confidence in who he was, but I want to say this, and I I hope you hear this, and I'm going to try to make the case. He not only was confident in who he was, he was confident in who these two human beings were. 
Notice earlier I said not only that he felt no need to tell them who he was, but also and importantly he felt no need secondly to tell them what they should be looking for. And, and the question begs at that point, why is God starting his ministry? Is he not making it plain to us what we need to be looking for? Obviously, we understand on the first count, he felt no urgency to reveal himself because he knew time would take care of that. You spend very long with Jesus and time will take care. You will begin to see. Psalm 34 and 8, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Happy are those who take refuge in him. Malachi, put me to the test. Just try me. Try me on for size. You can take it for a test drive and don't even have to put any money down. He is so confident in who he is, he allows people to taste and see that he is good. But why did he feel no need to tell them what they should have been looking for? Because he believed in them. He knew what they were looking for. You say, well, how did he know what they were looking for? He knew what they were looking for not simply because of his son of God clairvoyance, because frankly he had given up that clairvoyance. He only knew what he knew as the Father revealed it to him. He forfeited that divine privilege. He even said that he didn't know some things. When they pressed him for when he was coming back, he said, I don't know, just the Father and the angels haven't heard that. Why did he feel no need to tell them what they should have been looking for? Because he knew what they were looking for because he had created them. He had created and shaped the anatomy of their soul in the image of God. And he was therefore not only confident in himself, but he was confident in them. Now I want to take pause here for a moment because this is a profound idea. The church proclaims the profundity of our faith in God but I want to tell you the Bible also tells the story of God's faith in us he was confident in them Saint Augustine said it this way in his confessions he said you have made us for yourself O Lord listen you have made us for yourself O Lord our hearts are restless until they rest in you do you know what Saint Augustine was doing in his confessions at that moment he was doing a retrospective on his life and trying to figure out why he had lived so miserably, profoundly, badly. What had happened in my life? That was the question before St. Augustine. Why has my life been so bad up to this moment? And Augustine's conclusion was, I'll tell you why. I was a freshwater fish trying to live in salt water. I was a land animal trying to live underwater. I was outside of the domain in which I was created for. I was created, Augustine said, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. And when Jesus looked over his shoulder that day, he knew that he made, there was no need to impose upon them truth because he knew that he had made them for truth and he had embedded in the image of God down deep inside of them truth so much so that if they simply mind what was in them, they would know him. Jesus knew that day that all humans, including the two fellows who had pulled out from the crowd, Jesus knew that all of us are restless 
until we are at rest in God. And I know that idea of being at rest in God is so esoteric to some of you. You don't know what it means. And I can't explain that for you, but I can tell you, I can tell you more about the opposite of that. I can tell you that the opposite of resting in God is striving and despair and jealousy and envy. I can tell you that it's ill at ease and it ever leaves you feeling like a oval peg, even a square peg in a round hole. Jesus knew that we would be fine the same way the father understood at the door that day as he watched a boy trek off down the road with his backpack and luggage pack saying, I'll never be back. The father whispered to himself, yes, you will. Jesus knew that these two who were followers of John and now were following him were doing so because of beautiful restlessness. Let me tell you about that insomnia, that despair. There may be simply biological reasons for such, but there may also be deep spiritual reasons for things like this. Let me tell you why the striving, the longing, the lack of satisfaction... Why John Elway, a football hero of mine, said, I, I lived my whole life for that day when I held the trophy in my hand. I cannot tell you of the unspeakable depression that followed those days. Because to have made that an idol my entire life, oh, these things, trophies and accomplishments are wonderful in and of themselves, but they will break your heart every time if you make them a god. And Elway came to a spiritual experience holding that trophy and realizing that there had to be more than this that I'd given my entire life to. Beautiful restlessness. That's why the father can stand with broken heart and yet with some resolve of spirit and say, I'll let you go. I will not clamor to keep you here. That's why Jesus could calmly, confidently, and patiently engage these two without doing what I want to do, and that's frenetically rush to all of the answers. I mean, for crying out loud, if you're the way, the truth, and the life, and you have been for eternity, and you finally get here, you would have a tendency to prattle on, wouldn't you? But he knows the real work of soul. And he engaged these two with patience and no divine blood pressure elevated by looking at them and saying, what are you looking for? Even they could have been disappointed at that moment. Surely they had built up in their mind what the Messiah would say when he first came to earth. And he didn't need them to tell him because he already knew what their deepest desires were. He simply wanted them to know. Oh, that's the good work of a therapist. We could call this Message today, Jesus and Freud. Jesus, the Rogerian therapist. Jesus, the spiritual director. Jesus and soul work. This was no salesperson looking over his shoulder to his client, seeking information in order to see if he could satisfy their desires. No, listen. This was a loving God compassionately, and, and please understand, this is not a 2,000-year-old story. He's doing this in this room this morning. 
He's doing this at 3 o'clock in the morning with you. He's doing this with the trophies in your hand. This is a loving God compassionately leading them to do deep, real, true soul work. They say there are two kinds of people in the world. There's the person who crashes into the room and says, here I am. And Steve, there's the person who walks into the room. We know them. They walk into the room quietly and gently and they say, there you are. If anybody would have had a right to be a here I am, the party can start kind of person, I think it would have been God. And yet he doesn't even rush to this moment by a Jordan River with doves descending and Holy Spirit's falling and acclamation. He comes to the earth in the form of a baby. He grows up as a pimpled faced boy. He slams his thumb like any apprentice carpenter and at 30 he steps onto the scene. When John saw the Holy Spirit coming down, Jesus had been there for days in that place and John, John no doubt had already made his picks. There were politicians and powerful, there were regal people and noble people and rich people and profound people and smart people. Never would John have thought that cousin Jesus from the carpenter shop in Nazareth because that's the way God comes to the world. He never says, here I am. Jody always says, why there you are. And as the Holy Spirit falls and the dove flutters and flitters condescendingly down, before John can proclaim him the Lamb of God, John must have doubled over and laughed to himself. You've got to be kidding me. The kid I grew up with. And Jesus lovingly receives that approbation. And instead of continuing it with self-exaltation, he looks at the two of these first followers and he does not say, here I am. He looks at these two and says, oh, there you are. There you are. And the work of God begins something like this. Let's start with you. Life is brief and precious. And you've already spent a good part. These men were more than halfway spent in their life. The average age at that time for a male in Palestine would have been somewhere in the early 40s. These guys were probably in their 20s, 30s. Let's talk about the remaining years or months or hours you have left. And God starts his ministry on earth, not with a theological statement, but perhaps a theological question. What do you truly want out of life? He looked into their eyes and he said, would you look deep inside now? Would you look past the layers, the wounds, the scars? the years, the false selves, the ego, the fear, the sin, the shame, the anxiety. As you look for the kingdom of God, I would direct you to the core of you, the image of God in you, the belovedness of you. 
Jesus looked at them and said, let's look at the best in you, your deepest needs, your wants, your hopes, your dreams, your longings, your aspirations. I was told all of those things were bad. That's the sinful stuff, Bevan, that has nothing to do with the kingdom of God. It makes you feel good. It must not. Religion, external voices says all of these dreams, hopes, and longings, carnal, carnal, bad. And Jesus defies it all and says, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. He whispers, Scott, there you are. And he says, I'd like to talk to you about the kingdom of God. And instead of pointing heavenward, he said, we'll get there by going inward. What are those things you've longed for since a boy? I know those things. They are the image of God boiling and bubbling inside of you. So good. Let's go down, down, down to the deepest needs, wants, hopes, dreams, longing, aspirations, dreams, and desires. Let's start there with those things that are so native to you. They are not carnal. They are not of the devil. They are native to you because Jesus said, I know the material you were made out of and the hands you were made by. St. Ignatius of Loyola, the founder of the Jesuits, to whom the church will forever be indebted. Saint Ignatius, one of the holiest men in our millennia, said every time you pray you should ask God to give you what you are looking for, for you are looking for the right things, if you will but find them in the depth of your soul. Carl Jung said the most essential human question is are we related to something infinite or not? Is this an enchanted universe or are we simply trapped each in our own desperate and private search for meaning? Beautiful restlessness. Jesus whispers, what are you looking for? Do you even know? And I think back to that underneath the layers to that to that ball player in a ball player's family who always wanted to play an instrument but I think about listening to 91.9 from Arkansas State University's campus listening to classical music and listening to symphonies and orchestras and longing to be a part whether it was the bassoon or the clarinet I didn't care but Life never gave me those opportunities. I think about the boy that was raised in a denomination that scoffed at college and was in, unable to go and went off to Bible college. And I think about all those years of longing for an education and a terminal degree. And voices outside said, carnal, that's not the kingdom of God. But Jesus comes and cuts through all of that. Those are my silly things. No, those are deep longings and Jesus does not come and scoff at any of those things any more than he scoffs at Elway's trophy. He may not help the team win, but he stands in the midst of those kids who lift up those trophies. Make it no God and it can be a fine thing. What are you looking for? He looked at these two and said, do you even know what I'm asking you? Have you taken time to listen? 
Or have you lived so long for everyone else, including the God you think you know, that you are driven by nothing but external expectations and impositions and you have lost yourself on the way? What are you looking for, he said. And I am quite sure that he said it in such a way that if they didn't catch it, if they didn't catch it then, then they surely looked back later and they understood. When he asked us that, he already knew, didn't he? He already knew my little girl dreams. He already knew my little boy dreams. He already knew. Doggone it, that wasn't the devil they told me it was. That was the image of God in me. No, he wasn't looking for information. He was trying to supply it. But he was not trying to supply it in the cheap, ineffective way that bypasses the holy process of self-discovery. Let me say it again. He was trying to supply information not by giving it in that cheap, ineffective, religious way that bypasses the holy process of self-discovery. No, this was the Father in the Son who patiently stands at the door and says, I will finance the trip and knows that at the farthest point he has ever been from the Father's house, he will come to himself and he will have a self to go home with. And he will find at the farthest point of the father's house, in that hog pen, he is actually in the father's home because the father's home has always been deep inside his own soul. This is the beauty of the Christian faith. This is the beauty of Christian spirituality. It is rooted in flesh, it is rooted in dreams and hopes and longings, it is incarnational. I said at the beginning of the message that Jesus' first ministerial words did not point to heaven. I was very careful to say, to not say that they didn't point to God because his first words pointed deeply to God, not by pointing heavenward, but by pointing inward to the human soul. To the deepest and longings and dreams for the best within us comes from God. For God has given us all that is holy and right within us. And so God starts God's ministry with each of us, Danny, right there. He looks at Danny Pinnegar and he says, I'd still like to know what you're looking for. What is it you want? Know yourself deeply and you will find not only dreams buried deep within your heart, you will find God intertwined and tangled with those dreams. Jesus called them to sit with this question, not to answer it hastily, and they didn't. But over time and much trial and error, as with all of us, in their beautiful restlessness, they found as we will if we don't neglect this holy process. They found that they weren't looking for power, and I have wanted it. They found that they weren't looking for money. And I've learned that money can't make you happy, but I've also learned the absence of it can sure make you sad, so I have wrestlings there. But they found after a while, Everett, that they weren't looking for stuff or fame or public approval. No, 
you take this journey of beautiful restlessness with Jesus and you finally realize that the journey is an inward journey and in the course of that journey you ultimately find that what you were looking for was not those things but those things could be mediators of what you were looking for you were really looking for peace you were looking for some sense of worth some sense of meaning some sense of joy and goodness and truth and justice so that because down deep inside you know there really can't be true peace for anyone until there's true peace for everyone and you are forever besought by that need for a sharing of peace and joy down down deep we know these things and so Jesus says to us today take time to answer this what are you looking for and I think their question back to him and this is where I'll close is so profound our text today has them saying where are you staying but I actually like the translation that renders that quite effectively they looked at him when he said what are you longing for they looked at him and said where is your home and I can see the Lord hold back a wry smile <laughs> because he wanted to look at them and point square in the middle of their chest and say right there and it always has been but you wouldn't believe it if I told you so I'm going to follow you on a journey halfway around this world and by the time you come to the home of God you will realize that the home of God has always been the human soul and it may take you to far countries and long journeys and you may squander much in the process with this beautiful restlessness Augustine but when you come home after all your journeying you will find that you have come home to the place where you've always been and the Gospel of John tells that story because while Jesus hears them say where is your home instead of telling them where it really was he said come and see and they went on a long journey and the night before he was crucified he said I've got to go away but don't you worry in my father's house there's plenty of room and at the end of that story he told them my father and I have made our abode in you and Henry Nouwen that famed Christian author tormented as many Catholic priests tormented by his own sexuality driven from his own heart as a small child because of his sexuality Scott as a devoted Catholic boy he knew that he could not live who he felt he was inside so he gave himself to the celibate priesthood and in the angst and the torment and the rejection of his own heart his own soul his own identity in the torment of that he wrote 40 books like Life of the Beloved, Return of the Prodigal, The Wounded Healer 
He wrote and ministered through the 70s, 80s, and 90s to a Christian church, and he called us up to believe that we were the beloved of God. The engine of his writing was his profound mind. The high-octane fuel was his own angst and self-despair and self-loathing. One of his biographers speaking of now in sexuality, which he never, ever mentioned overtly in his books, said Henry wrote 42 books about the love of God that he could never lived. He lived a book that he could never write. But in the closest he ever came to revealing himself and revealing his own struggles and his own torment, Nowen said, in my despair, after a year of the deepest, darkest depression, broken down, lying on a floor in a home in Toronto for mentally handicapped adults, he said, in that place, I screamed out to God, and I said, oh, Lord, where is home? I want to come home. And he said, I saw a vision of God standing at the door of my heart. And he said it was the heart of a tender child who first rejected himself. It was the heart of an adolescent who said no to himself. It was the heart of a priest who ran as hard as he could to convince others, hoping to convince himself. He said it was the heart of a broken man, and it was mine. And around that world I had roamed, spoke before Congress and parliaments of many countries. And there God stood at the door of my heart as I screamed, I want to come home. And God smiled and said, well, come home, Henry. And he said, I stood and I screamed, I can never live there. And he said, the gentle one smiled and said, oh, Henry, I'm God. If I can live here, you can too. And in the long journey of life and spirituality, there is no need for God to do what I have spent too many years doing, trying to convince, conjole, and impose. All he really has to do is look over his shoulder into your heart and say, what are you looking for? Be honest. And as you begin that process, your restlessness will rage for home, and he will say, come and see. And you'll get to the end, and if you play your cards right, you'll be a peaceful old person in a little cottage because you won't need a palace in a cottage made up of your own soul. And God will just live there fine because he always has. That's the story of the ministry of Jesus. It's the way it started, and it's the way he still treats me today. And I hope you feel that in your heart as well. Here's you some practical work, and I'm going to badger this, you this week to make sure you do it. Go home this afternoon. And before the week starts in earnest, take you a little piece of paper and a pen. And if you don't have more than five minutes, I dare you to sit down and ask yourself. No, let Jesus ask you, what are you looking for? And put some headers up there like I did this morning. Vocation, academics, 
art, recreation. You say recreation, yeah, he made the world. I think he probably relishes people who like to travel it. Um, health, relationships. I scribbled on some paper today and said I'm 46 and I have gotten a lot but boy there's some stuff that I have buried and I gotta be honest with you I'm still restless and I'd like this just put it on paper and tuck it in your Bible or somewhere look at it a few years from now you might run across it and you'll do one of two things Bevan you'll either look at it and laugh hilarious and say what was I thinking or you'll look at it and you'll cry yourself to sleep down down deep where the work of God happens in the soul of man do that homework it'll be good for you this week Lord thank you for our time together thank you that you have made your abode in the soul of human beings thank you Lord for little girl dreams and little boy longings thank you Lord that they give us more than trophies but they do give us trophies and ribbons and A's and degrees thank you Lord for these good things but may we ever be reminded that they are but the tune of a song from a distant land they are simply portents of that ultimate satisfaction bring us home through our desires and dreams and our longings bring us home until we totally rest in you and then we'll lift up our trophies happily we'll live in our houses happily and we'll enjoy new cars and new clothes and there will be no sin and we will learn new instruments and take new vacations and these will be the gifts of God the dreams that lead us home to you thank you for this good work today we pray all of this in Christ's name and God's people said now go do your homework and don't wait till tomorrow God bless you go in God's grace